Canto 26 begins with a real change of mood from Cantos 24 and 5. It carries, I think, a certain majesty, though it's majesty with a twist because we're still descending. And it's also very striking that the souls in this new Bolger of the Malabolge, we're moving into the eighth Bolger now, the souls here, and one in particular, really draw Dante, more so than any other souls that we've met so far in hell. And that is going to turn out to be very significant for understanding what's going on. It opens with Dante the poet, issuing a sort of stately condemnation of Florence. Um, he says, Florence, you whose wings stretched over heaven and earth, I've never met more souls in hell than come from your city. He says that um, Florence's enemies couldn't wish Florence worse than what Dante is now seeing in hell. And he only wishes that it could come about more quickly because of what awaits them. And I think this is signalling something about Florence and the Civil War and turning in on itself and how a city which was founded on the greatest virtues and built the most beautiful things, when it loses touch with its wellspring, it rapidly spirals down and becomes hellish. But it's not just a remark about Florence, of course, these things are always meant in the most expansive way in Dante. It's too, I think, a comment about a civilization that when it loses touch with the source of its life and vitality, with the true nature of its charisma, which in the Christian language, the shortcut is when it becomes uncoupled from God, then things rapidly go wrong. And whether it be out and out civil war, or whether it be the slightly more subtle way in which individuals can still aspire to do great things, but because those great things have lost their deepest connection, they incline to descend rather than ascend. That in a way is the more subtle but more potent misfortune that a civilization that's become uncoupled from God that Dante is now pointing towards. If a civilization loses its higher vision at the very moment when it's got its greatest power through technology and influence and in a way knowledge but very much this worldly knowledge that's become uncoupled from heavenly knowledge then it's most at risk and it doesn't take much imagination to see therefore that this theme and this canto opens up something which is really important for us reading Dante now too. After his opening peroration, Dante describes how Dante the Pilgrim and Virgil move towards the Eight Bolger. There's a great emphasis again on clambering over rocks, the effort it takes, and includes one of these fascinating details that Virgil pulls Dante along we've come across Dante being carried by Virgil. And it raises this question of how this happens. And I think we can say a little bit more now about how this happens. What I'm pointing to is that Dante, the pilgrim, is still in his living body, where, the Vir where Virgil is a soul. And for us now, particularly after the Cartesian split, 
that's quite hard to understand because we think of souls as purely immaterial entities, whereas bodies are tangible and physical and weighty. And we struggle very hard to know how the soul and the body um, react um, to each other. So when we read of a Virgil, a Virgil's soul pulling Dante's body, um, it's quite hard to know what to make of that. But I think that the older medieval and ancient understanding of body and soul can make more sense because they didn't see body and soul as completely separate entities. You know, bodies are from Mars, souls are from Venus. Instead, um, they understood that the body is one pole of um, our lives and the soul is the opposite pole. And the body is most subject to the notion of gravity meant in the older sense of that which tends towards the more material aspects of the cosmos, so tends towards earth and water. Whereas the soul is that part of us which uh, inclines more towards ascent. Um, it has this quality of levity, again meant in the oldest sense, that it moves towards the airy, to the fiery, towards the spirit and towards the divine. So when you understand yourself as having these kind of two tendencies within you, one manifest more explicitly because it inclines towards the more explicit elements of the cosmos, the watery and the earthy, um, those that are subject to gravity. Um, that's what you most immediately see, you might say, and can, of course, become completely preoccupying because it's more tangible, uh, embodied corporeal existence. Um, but it's easy, therefore, to forget that there's also this side which is um, subject to, to levity, that naturally rises, that um, is full of air and fire and spirit and breath. It's that side. And in a way, part of the task in life um, is to ensure that levity eventually wins the day, that we learn something from the descent, the embodied existence, but that then serves the ascent, the side that um, is open to levity. And I think that when you see these physical interactions between Virgil and Dante in the Divine Comedy, um, it, it's like... Um, Virgil, as indeed he is here in Canto 26, he's full of focus, his will and his desire, his levity um, is very um, set on the journey that they must take. And so he's able to offer that levity, you might say, to Dante, who is feeling more of the gravity side of things. Um, Dante's got to make the descent. Um, he's got to know the full extent of that which will in the story, drag him right to the centre of the earth, the most material, the most far from God, the least um, uh, subject to levity. Um, but for this moment, um, Virgil's able to help Dante because he can offer his soul force, you might say, his soul nature um, to Dante's um, uh, soul body being. Um, and the upshot is that he can help him through um, this particular part of Malabolge. This is an old way of looking at things, but in some ways it's not so surprising. Um, you know, a inspiring talk um, inspires, puts soul, puts levity into you so that you can achieve things you thought maybe you couldn't. Um, and, you know, in psychotherapy, one of the things which can happen is that the therapist who um, knows a bit more about how things can work out 
um, because they've been through the journey themselves, um, can offer a bit of soulful advice or accompaniment to the person that they're working with, um, which um, not always um, overcomes the gravity of what the person in therapy is feeling, of course, but it's always there, ready for the moment that the person can take it in and that can awaken their own breath, their own air, their own fire, their own spirit once more when the therapy um, does the turn and moves from mostly descent to um, the distinct moment of ascent. So it's not a completely um, unusual description of things when you think about it in terms of our experience. Um, it's only when you insist on seeing the whole world through this Cartesian split um, that uh, these notions get very confusing. So Dante, in this canto, though, must learn about putting his powers, his talents, to best use, to his genius, to his inspiration, his inspiration to best use. And he says that at this point in the canto, as they move towards the eighth bolger and they see what um, souls are there. Um, he says that it grieves him um, as much as it's grieved him um, to see any of the other souls in hell, even though he's also powerfully attracted towards this bolger and who he might encounter. And what they see first is an almost beautiful sight. Dante describes it as being like a scene of fireflies that are buzzing around the countryside um, in the early evening, um, giving an eerie, beautiful, almost supernatural quality to the scene. Um, he adds that the fireflies quickly give way to the mosquitoes, um, which suggests that um, something's going to come back to bite us um, in this bolger. It's going to be disturbing and uh, unsettling. Um, it's not just uh, endless beauty, but there's something that's beautiful. It's also emphasised because he describes seeing flames, and these flames remind him of the flame of Elijah ascending into heaven that Elisha saw. Um, and it's again, it's a, it's a really interesting illusion because he says how Elijah couldn't follow the um, chariot that carried Elijah all the way into heaven. He couldn't see it move all the way into the celestial heights. Um, and for us as readers, that is um, a, a sort of uh, a prophecy of how if we continue on this journey with Dante, we're actually going to get to the point where Dante is able to follow the fire, the light, into the highest reaches of heaven. Um, he's going to be able to see something which um, Elijah couldn't see. So we've got a strange mix um, at this um, point in the canto where the action of the Eighth Bolger really begins, with a scene that um, is at once um, inspiring, delightful, but with a strong pull down, with a strong sense of fallenness. We know we're going to see something that is trapping souls, not freeing souls in all their levity. And what he sees are flames moving along the furrows of the chas chasm of the Eighth Bolger. And these flames, he realises, contain souls. It's a very interesting um, description of things. It's like the charisma, the genius, the spirit of these souls, rather than freeing them wholly to rise into heaven, has itself become a kind of prison, a kind of cage. Um, it's like they're 
charisma, their spirit has possessed them rather than enabling them to become part of the divine charisma, the divine genius, um, the divine spirit. He leans right into the bulger, um, so much so that Virgil has to sort of hold him back. He is completely desperate to speak to one flame in particular that he's noticed has two tongues um, flickering out of the top of it. And Virgil and Dante talk about this um, in their semi-telepathic way. They know what the other is thinking um, before they say it. And describe how this double-tongued flame traps two ancient figures, the figure of Ulysses, or in the Greek, um, Odysseus, and the figure of Diomedes. Now, it's very interesting that it's these two figures. Um, Ulysses um, is better known than Diomedes now, um, and um, they're great figures in particularly the work of Homer, although Virgil writes about them in the Aeneid as well. And in Homer's stories, they're two figures who are sort of tied together in their genius that is also very devious. And in the canto here, Dante rehearses two or three of their deeds for which they're best known. And the most famous is Odysseus's plan to smuggle a Trojan horse into the city of Troy. And Diomedes is one of the great warriors inside the Trojan horse. They're also known for stealing the statue of Athena called the Palladium from Troy because the gods had told the Greeks that they would need to get that statue if they were to um, flatten Troy. Um, and um, the tale of Odysseus um, and um, Diomedes uh, stealing it is one where they're sort of at each other as much as working together. Um, there's an old expression called a Diomedean compulsion. Um, which describes this because what happens is that um, at one point Odysseus actually turns on Diomedes um, and Diomedes sees that Odysseus has raised his sword because the moonlight uh, catches it. He turns around um, but rather than killing Odysseus he has to push Odysseus off because he knows that Odysseus is going to be crucial in the destruction of Troy, in the victory for the Greeks. So this is the Diomedidian compulsion, where you can't do precisely what you want um, because you know that something else um, is, uh, is more important. Um, but Diomedes uh, means advised by the gods, something like that in the Greek. Um, and Odysseus um, is known particularly for his cunning. He's always described as a crafty fellow. Um, which is what his name implies too. And it's something about both of them, hugely talented, great heroes in the ancient world, but not quite riding their talents, their genius, um, it partly riding them. Um, and so, you know, they, they fight it, they fight each other, um, which is now represented in the state they find themselves here, uh, trapped in the same genius flame, um, but like the tongues of a flame, sort of half rapping, half fighting, half working together. Um, that's the image um, which we get. To say something else about Ulysses stroke um, Odysseus, um, he's such an interesting figure too at this point. Um, to leap ahead, um, when 
uh, scholars study the Divine Comedy. They read it through canto bo canto like we do, but they also do what's called vertical readings of the Divine Comedy, where they read, say, Inferno 26 against Purgatory 26, against Paradise 26, and they read the corresponding cantos in each of um, the three sections. And if you do that, you'll realise that um, Ulysses is actually paired with Adam by Dante further down the line. And this, um, I think, begins to illuminate for us the significance, um, the deeper significance, you might say, um, of encountering Ulysses here. Um, let me tell you a bit, little bit more about the backstory of um, Odysseus, um, as he's called in Homer. And I'm getting this particularly from the work of Jeremy Nagler, um, whose brilliant book, In the Shadow of the Machine, talks about this. And um, Jeremy was uh, the key person, really, for opening up the Divine Comedy um, to me. Um, so I'm very glad to, um, to point um, you in his direction now um, as well. Um, and Jeremy writes really interestingly about um, Odysseus's um, encounter with um, Polyphemus, Polyphemus is the Cyclops whom Odysseus blinds by pushing an olive branch into his single eye. And in the story of um, the Odyssey, it's, it, Jeremy Nadler remarks that it's like a kind of um, Greek version of the Hebrew fall. From that moment onwards, Odysseus travels and wanders across the sea and gets trapped by gods he doesn't understand. Um, almost makes it home before um, being swept away again. Um, his cunning escaping Polyphemus is a mixed blessing. He gets away, but it also leaves him uncoupled from the divine, from um, the spirited presence of nature. And it's that um, kind of fall idea um, that Dante's playing with here. Um, he's going to subsequently tell us that um, Ulysses um, desired excellence and knowledge, much as Adam desired um, the knowledge from the tree of good and evil in Eden. And it deepens the sense that this canto has to do with the human desire for the divine, the human desire to understand things in godlike ways, but how very badly this can go wrong when it becomes uncoupled when human craftiness and cunning overtakes the human desire and will to align with the divine. And Dante is deeply conscious of this. He too seeks to travel across the seas of the spirit. He seeks to um, discover new horizons, um, to ascend to the place where there's no horizons anymore. Um, and he must use all his power and talents to do so, but he must constantly be sure that they're aligned with the divine, else he could find himself with his charisma trapping him in a flame of hell, rather than being the flame that can carry him on the ascent into the heavens. So I think that's why this canto is so powerful for Dante the Pilgrim, but also so important for him on his journey, and indeed for us who live at times where our civilization gives us great powers, great knowledge, great learning, but raises the question of how we've become uncoupled and whether our flame of genius, if you like, is trapping us rather than carrying us 
into the world of God. Dante and Virgil have a discussion about how to speak to this flame. And Virgil says to Dante, I'll speak, you watch. Um, the reason given is that Dante doesn't speak Greek, which I understand was true in life. Um, I think that means that Virgil will be able to ask more skillful, insightful questions of um, this flame and so get a deeper understanding, which is going to be so crucial to um, Dante. The flame comes towards them and then one of the two tongues begins to speak and it is the tongue of Ulysses. Now he tells a tale of his final endeavour which is not in the ancient record. It's one that Dante here is discerning anew. Um, it's a fresh myth. And I think that it's kind of interesting. Um, remember that I've got this theme of how Virgil is developing perhaps quite as much as Dante during this descent. And so in a way, this is Dante saying to Virgil, there's more in this myth of Ulysses stroke Odysseus than even Homer or you saw. And that's going to be revealed to us now. And what he tells of is how Ulysses wants to make one final push. He wants to leave the Mediterranean, in fact. He wants to travel through the pillars of Hercules at Gibraltar, which mark um, the gods' gateway, um, warning the ancient Greeks not to travel any further. Um, he inspires his men with his charisma to do so. He tells them, look, you've only got one life. Let's put it to good use. Let's go and see what lies towards the sun. I want to see all the vices and virtues of humankind, Ulysses tells them, um, and his men um, are similarly inspired too. Um, but you get these themes. It's very close, actually, to what Dante's doing. He is now seeing all the vices of humankind and will see all the virtues too. He wants to travel towards the sun. Um, he wants to move into the divine realms, out of the human realm. Um, Ulysses wanted that as well. But I think partly because he sees it as, um, if you like, um, just a this life journey, rather than seeing that this life is just the beginning, um, a sort of portal into um, the afterlife, into the divine life, into the hell, the purgatory and the paradise. Um, he is not really capable of understanding the journey that he wants to embark on. I think that's what Dante is implying. Um, giving it this reading through the ideas of Owen Barfield, um, which I mentioned quite a few cantos ago, you could understand this as how Ulysses belongs to a phase of human consciousness um, that um, is quite different from our own. Because um, according to Barfield's idea, what happened with Christianity um, is that things which have been shared by um, ancient peoples as a whole have been taken into ourselves as individuals now. Um, and Jesus was the individual who, in his complete humanity, knew God completely as well. Um, whereas in the ancient world, um, different human individuals had alignment with different gods in this polytheistic world so that no one human individual could see it all. That's changed now. Um, our individuality has intensified um, with all um, the blessings and curses of that. Um, but Dante is now, in a way, implicitly comparing himself 
with the older consciousness and trying to understand what the Christian dispensation means, where Ulysses overstretched what his consciousness was capable of. The question for Dante now is, can this new Christian consciousness aspire to see the divine fully, even as Christ's life had prophesied, had showed, had suggested? But it, he's got to get it right. It depends on subtleties. It depends on his God-given powers and talents remaining completely rooted in the divine power and genius, lest it go horribly wrong, as it clearly can, as they're finding through this descent into hell, and as was the case for Ulysses. Ulysses des describes to Dante uh, quite quickly, really, what happened. Um, they passed through the Straits of Gibraltar and they turned left. And it's interesting he describes it as turning left rather than moving south. Um, uh, it's the sense that Ulysses thought perhaps he was doing a divine thing, travelling um, the left way as um, Virgil and Dante had been doing most of the time in their descent through hell. Um, but when they pushed on and travelled for five months following um, their southern passage, Ulysses says that um, they came across a great mountain, the likes of which they'd never seen before. And this is the uh, mythical geography of the Divine Comedy, because as we're going to find out, um, that great mountain is actually the mountain of purgatory. But Ulysses had arrived there too soon, and so a whirlpool opened up, um, and it consumed his ship after tossing it around and around and around three times. It consumed him and his men, and carried him, in the story, implicitly, to hell. I think it's kind of saying that you've got to make the descent before you can make the ascent. Um, whether that be the descent of this evolution of consciousness, over the centuries in the story of human culture and the new dispensation that Dante is grappling with um, in Christianity, or whether it be for the individual too, like Dante um, is now making the descent as the crucial step before it can become the ascent. Um, I think this is the moment of hope for Ulysses in this canto. He feels like he's, his soul is trapped in the wrong place. Um, his his charismic, his charism, his flame has actually possessed him rather than carrying him. But there's an implicit sense reading between the lines here that actually he's in the place he needs to be. Um, it doesn't say this explicitly. This is me sort of reading ahead a little bit. But I think that this is also a moment of hope here in hell. And it's why the canto begins with this description of the scene of all these flames being like the fireflies in the early evening, looking beautiful and brilliant with light, carrying the memory of levity, fire and spirit that can carry them to heaven, even though it's got this, this dark twist here in hell and the fireflies are going to become mosquitoes. The chasm traps them, dragging them down by their gravity. And so the canto ends with Ulysses describing his ship being consumed by the whirlpool and the sea closing over the top of them. And Dante and Virgil are left contemplating what they've seen and heard.